0: This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Welcome to this myth busting episode of Property Patter. As property litigators, we often hear sentences beginning, surely I must be allowed to, or surely they can't be allowed to. And the answers are sometimes surprising to those we're advising. So, today I'm joined by Emma Priest and Sam Lear of our real estate disputes team, and we've each chosen a favourite myth or misunderstanding to discuss. I'll start us off. Uh, Hello to you both. My favourite one is where a landlord of a residential property suggests that it might change the locks on the tenant because they've failed to pay the rent or done some other breach of lease. And for some landlords, in my experience, this seems a very obvious solution when the tenant fails to perform his or her part of the deal. Uh, But unfortunately for those landlords, we then obviously have to tell them that it's not that straightforward. Um, And that for our listeners benefit in most cases is because there will be a tenancy agreement which is subject to statutory protection. So it can't be terminated without due process. And what I mean by that is proper notice at the very least. And if the tenant doesn't vacate voluntarily, then court proceedings should usually be issued and a proper eviction undertaken using a court bailiff. And more to the point, um, and I think we all probably are used to quoting this bit of legislation, we have the Protection from Eviction Act 1977, and that says that if anyone unlawfully deprives a residential occupier of his occupation of premises or tries to do so, they will commit a criminal offence. Um, And that's usually when we get people's attention a bit more, um, because unless they can prove that they had reasonable cause to believe that the residential occupier had stopped residing at the premises, they could be in a heap of trouble. Um, So have you guys, I'm guessing, probably at some point, you've both come across this very conversation?
1: Yes, I've come across it um, as recently as last week, in fact. Uh, More commonly in the scenario where not only has the tenant not paid its rent, but has seemingly abandoned the premises. So the tenant could have ceased all contact with the landlords, um, not respond to texts, WhatsApp messages, emails, that kind of thing. So the landlord genuinely believes that the tenant has, has disappeared completely. And often the landlords, all they want to do is enter into the property, notwithstanding the renter is, and uh, re-let the premises to to someone else. I mean, this is particularly frustrating in cases where uh, the landlord suspects um, that there could be damage to the property, um, including, for instance, a water leak, um, in in my case last week, for instance. Um, In those types of cases, um, particularly if it's an emergency, the landlords can in theory, re-enter the property. They had to be very careful about how they do it. So we would always recommend that they try every method possible to contact the tenant with plenty of notice. And then if they do re-enter for emergency purposes only, that they are accompanied. They maybe take a contemporaneous note or some kind of video evidence. And that could at the very least provide the basis of a defence if the tenant should turn up out of the blue and argue that there has been some form of breach of the Protection from Eviction Act. Um, how common it is for a tenant to come back, it has happened once or twice. Um, I have known a tenant who has been unexpectedly put away in prison for a few months and then returned to find that their uh, property had been relet to someone else. Um, so, you know, going through the notice procedure, going through the court process is always to be recommended.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. And, uh, you know, as you say, in emergency situations, you, you know, very often there are reasons you've got to act, but you have to act carefully. And, you know, if you are, if you do have to change the locks, then we usually send a letter to the tenant to say, we're holding the keys, but we've had to go in because or whatever. So, as you say, I think when you're dealing with the potential for a, a criminal if, conviction you know you can't you can't be too careful about these things really um there was some legislation i think um i can't remember if it was proposed or got i think it may have even got passed where there was going to be some better notice procedure for ast tenants um to get around this problem because obviously it is very frustrating if you're pretty sure that they've left um but i think that never got part well i know that never got passed because otherwise we'd be using it um so perhaps that's something the government do with dusting off at some point what about you Emma have you come across these scenarios
2: yeah I have it is quite common as you say I was actually just going to say that once once I've explained that unfortunately you can't simply go in and there is a protection from eviction act the next question is usually so how long is that going to take um so slightly more difficult one to answer actually um because the possession claim has to be issued in the court that's closest to particular property um, and so the speed in which it's then issued and a hearing listed simply depends on the turnaround time for that particular court and we can't say at any one point in time what exactly that is um, we can call up and try and find out but chances are you ask one person one day and then you'll get a different answer if you call them again the next day and that's if you can even get through sam exactly same <laughs> county
0: court do we remember how many hours slash days that took <laughs>
1: yes, and it and it can be really painful to deal with, but unfortunately, that's the system we're currently operating in. yeah, yeah.
2: that's my f- my favorite is usually when you've held on for twenty minutes and then they just cut you off. <laughs> nobody answers the phone um, but i was I was going to say that the London courts, as you would expect, are a bit more saturated with these sorts of claims, so it's generally a bit slower. The regional courts do because you know tend to be slightly less subscribed move things through a little bit quicker Um, but we are still seeing a little bit of a backlog in light of the restrictions that were in place during covid so all a bit frustrating really for landlords
0: yeah i think particularly also with the bailiff appointments because obviously the delay in issuing possession proceedings that we had during covid actually a lot of the time meant people reached agreements or what have you but you know if it's actually got far enough to have a bailiff's appointment i think there's been some backlogs there, we see there was a huge period of time when bailiffs couldn't go in at all. So I suspect our estimates of it'll take a few months, probably going to be even longer at the moment, or at least for for the foreseeable future, isn't it? But I mean, the other thing landlords have to bear in mind, of course, is that their remedies are preserved in the meantime, in terms of, you know, if, if a tenant, if you're getting cross with a tenant, because they haven't paid the rent, then obviously you are entitled to recover that rent. Uh, there'll be a claim for it if you go for possession proceedings will include a claim for arrears um, but I realise that may be small comfort if um, the tenant doesn't have any assets and the delay can be frustrating but anyway that's that's covered my favourite um, surely I must be able to change the locks um, uh, hopefully for anyone who uh, has come out with that at any point uh, hopefully that explains why we uh, sometimes have to give a note of caution shall we say Um Sam, what about you? What's, what's your favourite?
1: The one that's particularly um, sort of commonplace amongst a, a few of my friends who have spent many years saving up to, to buy a flat. Um, I have just spent years saving up enough money to buy my flat. Surely I can do whatever I like to it. So this is a particularly interesting one because I find that a lot of people seem to be under the misconception that just because they've they pay, I don't know, £300,000 or, or whatever for a flat, so they own you know, the lands, the bricks and mortar to, to their flats. But actually, property ownership generally is quite misunderstood, partly because the English and Welsh system is pretty complicated, uh, especially compared with um, other countries. And there is a distinction between the freehold and the leasehold. Now, In terms of flat ownership, in inverted commas, um, they are typically leaseholds, meaning that you basically have the right to a lease of the flat for a certain period of time. And in lots of cases, this could be a very long time, for instance, 999 years or 125 years or 99 years, they're they're the common uh, term lengths. Uh, But in the case of leaseholds, they are often subject to various covenants, normally in favour of the freeholder, and they can be quite restrictive, um, both in terms of scope, but also in terms of um, your location, the estate it's in, or your neighbours. So, for instance, it could be not to carry out um, alterations without the uh, freeholder's consent, often to be not unreasonably withheld. So if you, for instance, you've spent your £300,000 on a flat, and you think it's in a bit of a rundown state, and actually you would rather have an open plan, a living area and, and kitchen, but at the moment it's compartmentalised, um, you may be restricted from doing so, uh, depending on the scope of the covenants. Equally, you might have a dog. Um, and again, Uh, it's possible that the terms of your lease forbid the ownership of pets within the building. Or another more common one in recent times is Airbnb. Lots of people know when they're away from their flat for a particular period of time, they might want to Airbnb it for the remainder. And again, there could be covenants against sort of subletting or or letting the flat out um, as an Airbnb. So it can be quite restrictive, but that could also be compounded if you have a particularly difficult freeholder, or, or more commonly, perhaps, you have a freeholder where it's very difficult to get a hold of them or their or their managing agents. Um, but I guess the next question is, well, so what? If you do carry out alterations or if you do have pets, what's the worst thing that can happen? Where in the worst case scenario, you can find that your lease is forfeited, um, I mean, there's a huge process to be undertaken before it gets to, to that point where you lose your flats and you know, your entitlement to any monies from it. Uh, but still, that, that does represent the worst case scenario. So to be in breach of covenant of your lease is not something to be advised. Um, but Emma uh, P, perhaps you could uh, comment on some practical things that a uh, leaseholder can do.
2: Yeah, I think I think the problem is that there's sometimes this idea that the long lease is the same as slash, as good as a freehold. Um, and that's why some people forget about covenants. Um, so I think it's important when purchasing the lease at the outset that the leaseholder is fully aware what they can do, what they can't do, when they need to get consent, how they go about getting consent when they need it, um, and essentially ensure that they read the lease in full and fully understand what they're signing up for. Um, and take any advice required if they've they've got any questions about that Um, and then also remembering to revisit it if you know any of the scenarios that you mentioned come up in the future that's another thing is you know just because you've signed it doesn't mean someone's going to remember to do it but it is a conscious thing that you will have to remember to do Um, so I think it's just trying to keep it in mind as much as you can really
0: and i think people get put off don't they because they think oh it's a big long document and what have you but you know as you say sam if they don't read it then actually it can end up you know involving quite a lot of costs because as you say you know forfeiture is hopefully unlikely but you know the landlord is entitled to serve a section 146 notice to say you're in breach of lease and you are usually required to pay the costs of that notice that can be quite significant then there'll be the toing and throwing over you know explaining why you're in breach trying to reach some agreement about it um, uh, possibly documenting something or what have you but you know and again the tenant's going to end up paying the landlord's costs of all of that correspondence because if they are in breach um you know there will usually be a provision in the lease saying well you're in breach you have to pay the landlord's costs so it's you know it's not ideal is it and in fact as you were saying i mean pets airbnb they're both really great examples the other one i've had a lot of over the years is the wooden flooring you know people put down the wooden flooring haven't read that their lease says it has to be carpeted or there might be provision in there saying that you can have wooden flooring but it's got to be with consent and they don't get the consent or it's got to be with certain level of soundproofing and they don't do that and they have to rip it all up again um and these are you know this is this is the reality of what happens if you don't read the lease carefully Um, And I think also from it's worth saying, isn't it, from a tenant's perspective, I think that's particularly frustrating because actually, if you go about these things in the right way and you apply for formal consent from your landlord properly, then actually a lot of the time, you know, either it will be fine or often the landlord actually doesn't get its act together to respond in time and the landlord often has duties to respond you know within a reasonable time etc um so actually you can find yourself in quite a strong position then to be going you know to go ahead with what you want to do but if you start off on the wrong foot by breaching the lease then it's just a, a painful situation really isn't it from from then on in
1: Absolutely. And often you won't be very popular with your fellow leaseholders if they find out that there's a great big legal bill as part of their service charge at the end of the year. I mean, I live in a block of flats and I've, I have found that and you see this bill for £10,000 of legal fees and you wonder what on earth has everyone else been doing in in the development to incur th- that amount of cost? So it, it can be very tricky indeed. Um, so, y- yes, absolutely. The, the message is to know what you're signing up for and to bear that in mind whenever you do anything particularly significant with your flat.
0: Definitely read it people read it (laughs) Um, and Emma P what what about you what's your favourite
2: myth that you end up discussing with people? So mine's about break clauses so I think my favourite myth would be I've sent an email to my landlord's commercial agent to exercise the break clause all I need to do now is vacate the premises at the expiry my initial thought is that this is unlikely to be correct. However, saying that the drafting of a break clause in a commercial lease is a matter for negotiation. And so they can vary quite a lot in terms of um, what's required by the tenant. But generally speaking, they are quite burdensome and they are it, it, there's lots of traps and it's quite easy to get it wrong. Um, so sort of taking this in two parts is first sending an email. That seems quite surprising for me. Um, the terms of the break laws must be strictly complied with, and this will usually say how much notice needs to be given, how the notice is to be given, if there's any other conditions to be complied with when the break notice is served. Um, and so this needs to be checked and read very carefully prior to it serving the notice. Um, so as I said, I'd be surprised to see a break clause which says that the notice can be served just by email alone. Um, simply because email is not a particularly safe method of sending a break notice. Um, that email address may not be used anymore. It may not be checked. It may be caught in the junk folder um, and you can't guarantee it's been delivered either. So more often what we would see is service by hand or by first class post or recorded delivery. Um, in relation to the second part of the question, which is that all I've got to do now is, is vacate in say six months time. Um, that is, unlikely to be the position as well. So as I said, we usually see conditions attached to a break clause Um, in terms of the timing of compliance that will be specified in the lease that will say whether they need to be complied with when the break is served, although that's quite unusual, it's more likely to be as at the break date Um, and common conditions that we see are things such as all rent and sums during the lease need to be paid up in full. Um, The tenant gives vacant possession to the landlord. Um, and that any subleases are terminated as well. Um, And there's a huge amount of case law on each of these. Um, The short point is that tenants can trip up really easily. um, So they must be considered really carefully and the tenant's particular uh, situation on the ground needs to be taken into account as well. Um, So essentially, if the break clause is, break notice is served, but then the condition is not complied with, the break notice will have no effect. Um, So really I'd say, think of it as a two-step process. The first is serving your notice checking for any conditions to be complied with then and then also checking what conditions need to be complied with as at the break date as well um but they come up a lot as i say so sam i just wondered have you got any weird or wonderful stories that you can share with us
1: yes uh, break notices um and exercising them um, they're, they're, they get they are my favorite uh, forms of uh, property litigation i think because you can get some really interesting arguments so We're seeing increasingly um, the use of turnover rents, particularly following um, the pandemic. And the problem with making a break condition that is linked to something like turnover rents is that such calculations can be really difficult and therefore being absolutely certain that you're exercising the break, that you're paying the precise sum on time and in the correct manner can be very, very difficult. Now, I have encountered a scenario where uh, a party had failed to make um, a rent payment on time and therefore it was liable for another five years worth of, of the lease term. And that's a very bad negotiating position to be in, in um, if you're the tenant and trying to uh, agree a break with the, with the landlord, so particularly if the landlord decides to, to take the point um vacant possession that's always a, that's always a, a classic example of of where it can be difficult as well because it can be quite subjective to a, to a degree and perhaps the most common one I come across um and this sort of ties in with uh, negligence a little bit is where break notice hasn't been signed or or it hasn't sort of precisely complied with the mechanics of the break clause itself so I've I've advised a parties before where a break notice has been served but not signed or dated correctly but it was with a covering letter which was signed so whilst those you know, slights or small deficiencies where the break notice might not necessarily be fatal I have found that arguing over it can can take a lot of time and money so it's definitely a very complicated area and certainly an area where you don't want to trip up if at all possible. And
0: the problem is it's easy to trip up, isn't it? You know, with, with break options, you know, have got, you've got, as you said, Emma, all these very different break clauses, you know, you don't come across a standard one, all these varying conditions, or, you know, even if there's apparently no conditions, even with something as simple as pay the rent on time, tenants can still trip up, uh, vacant possession, as you said, Sam, as well, you know, I'm getting a lot of inquiries about what that means at the moment and, you know how much does a tenant have to perhaps reinstate before it leaves and that you know so it's 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 an absolute minefield and of course particularly because you know a break right is an option and so they're strictly construed and that's the problem that landlords or tenants depending on you know who's exercising but that's the problem that they've got you know that famous quote about the pink paper and the blue paper you know <laughs> I always remember that but it's such a good illustration you know if, if the notice if the clause said it had to be on blue paper you know it would have been no good being on pink paper or whichever way round it was but it, you know the principle I think it was a great illustration of just how strictly they are construed and I think it's what leads to problems and then on top of all that even if the drafting is correct and all the rest of it you still got to get it to the right person make sure it's served properly I mean you two will probably remember the time when we got instructed at six o'clock at night to serve a break notice which had to be done that day and there was I bimbling about in a car park trying (laughs) trying to find somebody to serve you know it was Slightly hairy stuff and and particularly also because, and I know we all have this pet hate about people leaving it to the last minute, but that's because if they don't get it right and if the notice doesn't, you know, if the option doesn't get exercised properly, then of course, in so many cases as you mentioned earlier, they are liable for the rent for the rest of the term of the lease, whatever that is. And if it's, you know, five years at whatever, it's usually a pretty significant figure. Um, so it's worth getting it right. It's worth reviewing it properly uh, and and hopefully allowing yourself enough time to serve the notice properly as well. So, yeah, I totally agree. It's, um, it's one where people always think it's straightforward. And I think it's safe to say in our experience, very rarely is, unfortunately.
1: And another sort of scenario I come across actually is where the break date falls within a rent payment window and tenants often think, fine, I'll just pay the rent up to the up to and including the break date. And therefore I've discharged the obligation to, you no, know, in respect of the, the break condition. But again, that, that, that's full of peril. It, obviously it depends on how the break uh, conditions are, are drafted. But we've seen in recent cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court, like um, M&S and BNP Paribas, that the court will give effects uh, to the agreement, particularly where um, they are negotiated by two commercial parties of relatively equal bargaining power. So again, we, we tend to advise that the tenant pays the entire quarter's rent, for instance, if, if the rent is paid quarterly and that when drafting uh, these conditions you have some kind of rent rebate provision in there as well covering any period after the break date to the end of that that rental period but that's another really sneaky uh, way to potentially fall foul of of the break conditions
0: so true. Emma and I were just liaising on one like that earlier. And it's that's exactly right. It's so easy to fall foul of those provisions, not quite notice, you know, w- w- you wouldn't think, would you? You know, if your if your tenancy is, is going to end midway through a quarter, you fully understand that tenants think, oh, well, I'll just pay the rent up to that day. And landlords often an invoice. For that as well they make the mistake um and then as you said earlier you could probably have some argument about estoppel and all the rest of it but you just don't you don't really want to get into all of that cost um it, you know it can be very painful indeed well thank you both that's been really interesting um i think very interesting to share thoughts on our favorite myths and misunderstandings um i think we'll do another podcast on this topic actually in the future i, I suspect we've only scratched the surface of our um of our myths and misunderstandings uh, so i encourage our listeners perhaps to send in ideas for anything where they can't understand why the law is the way it is um, and we will happily try to explain it in the meantime thank you for joining us and we hope that you're all keeping well This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.